Well, our main passage this morning is from Mark's gospel, just read, where we'll look at the mission of Jesus in the light of Epiphany. But first, we're going to look briefly at that Old Testament passage, which forms, I think, a perfect backdrop to the compassionate mission of Jesus. The Shunammite woman written about in 2 Kings had been providing extravagant hospitality for God's man, the prophet Elisha. And instead of bringing her the sort of hostess gift we might bring when we're a house guest, like a jar of homemade granola or fancy soaps for the guest bathroom, Elisha is interested in addressing her deepest desires. Note that the Shunammite woman is reluctant to name what she really desires. If you've ever carried a profound longing for something precious that's gone unfulfilled for years, you might understand why she's unwilling even to speak her desires aloud. But Elisha's servant puts his finger right on it and names it. She longs for a son. And even when Elisha promises her a happy end to her painful waiting, she, she doesn't want to believe it. No, she says, don't lie to me. Hope has become too painful for her to touch, much less carry. But of course, God delivers on this extraordinary promise. The Lord blesses the Shunammite woman with a son right on schedule. This is a spectacular blessing, a joy beyond imagining. Sorrow has turned to rejoicing. Her pain ends in love. This is a gift that changed the shape of the Shunammite woman's life forever. And she lived happily ever after, right? (laughs) Or not. Uh, The scriptures are not fairy tales. Um, So some years later, maybe 10 years, maybe 15 years later, the son has grown. Something goes wrong with his body, this miracle body, and he dies suddenly in the prime of his youth. Life is short. Our bodies are fickle. Unexpected evils befall us. We survive one tragedy only to be faced with another one. Who can deliver us from this body of death? Is there anyone who can have a compassion for us that lasts beyond the grave? A joy that could outlive death. Let's turn now to Mark chapter 1, the passages in your Bibles and in your bulletin. Our passage picks up right after Jesus has invited Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John to follow him. Verse 21, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So immediately, we're alerted to something unique about Jesus. We don't know what Jesus taught this particular Sabbath day, because what really caught the attention of the people was not his message, but the authority he speaks with. He's contrasted with the scribes, who are also called teachers of the law. And because the job of the scribes was to pass on the traditional interpretations of God's word, most of their teachings would be prefaced with phrases like, as Rabbi so-and-so taught us, or as it has been said. All of their authority on God and God's word was derived from this tradition 
historic um, uh, institution that they serve. But now, the man standing before them is not just one deeply familiar with the word of God. The man that stands before them is the word of God in the flesh. Scribes and elders discussed and debated and fussed over the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. The eternally living word of God had invaded their reality, and his authority was undeniable but inexplicable. They didn't know who he was, but they could sense his power. Fresh on the heels of this amazement, events take an even more dramatic twist. Verse 23, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. A man possessed by a demon is in their midst. And before Jesus says or does anything, the unclean spirit initiates a confrontation. And he, the unclean spirit, cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Again, the authority of Jesus is felt and palpable. Jesus had not spoken to the demon. He's certainly not coming at him in any aggressive way. But the unclean spirit is threatened and agitated by his presence. Because unlike the scribes and the disciples and everybody else in the room, this unclean spirit already knows Jesus' true identity. The demon freaks out and starts yelling, Why are you here, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Not only does this evil spirit know who Jesus is and where he's from, he knows all about the compassionate mission of Jesus. He knows that Jesus will ultimately crush the demonic oppression of the human race. The mission of the evil spirit is to kill, steal, and destroy. But the mission of the Father through the Son is to save, heal, and give life. So this unclean spirit, in his fear and anger, ends up witnessing to the saving power, authority, and compassion of Jesus. I know who you are, the unclean spirit cries out. You are the Holy One of God. And this title, the Holy One of God, is one used for the Messiah, the one anointed to save. We have this evil, hostile spirit in a backhanded manner actually testifying to the authority and compassion of Jesus. Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Sure enough, Jesus confirms the demon's worst fears by ordering the unclean spirit basically to shut up and get out. And the spirit has no choice but to obey. Now, when Satan and his demons are forced out into the open, they tend to crank up the melodrama. So even though the unclean spirit is forbidden to speak, he gives a loud, last, unintelligible shriek or growl or whatever, convulses the poor man he's tormenting, and then leaves. And what's the result? More Amazement, verse 27, and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. 
Other literature from this time period indicates that while there were, in fact, rabbis skilled in exorcism, nobody was performing exorcisms like this one. Nobody. Exorcisms of demons tended to involve lots of techniques and rituals and props and lengthy negotiations with the spirits, and they could take repeated sessions over days or longer. But this Sabbath day, when Jesus is confronted by a demon, he just rips the demon out with a brief word, and the possessed man is free. Done. Basically, the crowd goes wild, and Jesus becomes a celebrity overnight. Jesus and the four disciples head to Simon Peter's house. Mark writes in verse 29, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So Jesus leaves that public arena in the synagogue and enters a private home. Here, away from the eyes of everyone but his brand new disciples and the members of the household, he enters a room where an ill woman lay and reaches out to her. And as he grasps her hand, her whole body is healed. As with the demon-possessed man, the transformation is instantaneous and complete although this time it's drama-free. Normally, recovering from a fever requires a good bit of rest, but Simon Peter's mother-in-law is restored to full health instantly. She's full of energy and eager to bless the one who blessed her. This gentle, private, domestic healing stands in contrast to the dramatic public deliverance in the synagogue, but both are examples of the compassionate responsiveness of Jesus to people in need. His plans for the day had included teaching in the synagogue and then probably getting a good night's rest, but he chooses instead to respond with compassion to the suffering human beings he encounters. And then night falls. Verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Everybody has been texting and tweeting and burning up the phone lines ever since Jesus left the synagogue, and now the crowds are about to rush the house and turn this quiet family and friends moment into an all-night healing service. The townspeople didn't want to break the Sabbath earlier by transporting their sick friends around, but now that the sun is down, the Sabbath is over, People are free to traipse around town carrying or supporting their sick or their demon-afflicted neighbors and family members to check out this amazing guy they've just heard about. What does Jesus do with this unexpected influx, huge influx, of needy, troubled people? Verse 34, he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So here's a question for us. At this point in the story, we've seen evidence that Jesus possesses unequaled authority and power to heal and deliver. And we've seen evidence that he is eager to use that power 
to, re to relieve suffering. He's given up his night's rest to serve these people who have come. Assuming that this is a true account of historic events concerning Jesus, would you say that you respond to Jesus like the people of Capernaum did? Are we as a church figuratively hunting Jesus down after dark, eager for him to heal us of our diseases and asking him to deliver us from evil? Are we rousing our afflicted family and friends and neighbors from their beds in the night, offering to carry them across town to his door? Or are we perhaps more like the Shunammite woman before her son was born, reluctant to own our own needs, much less willing to bring them to Jesus in hope? I think the verses we just read hold one of the reasons we are sometimes reluctant to bring ourselves and those we love to Jesus for healing. Verse 32 said that the people brought all who were sick or oppressed by demons to Jesus. Verse 33 says that the whole city came out. But in verse 34, Mark records that Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Jesus healed many people, but not all people. He cast out many demons, but not all demons. Not everyone who seeks Jesus out receives healing or deliverance in the here and now. That was true in the days of Jesus in Galilee, and it's true in our day. Some people receive a miraculous healing from God, and some don't. Some are delivered spectacularly, dramatically from spiritual bondage, and some are not. Some of us remain in various degrees of painful circumstances with unfulfilled longings. This is a painful reality. And I think it is often this uncertainty, will Jesus heal me in the way that I hope, to the degree that I long for? This uncertainty creates just enough friction in our hearts and minds to prevent us, even when we believe on Jesus, from getting as close as we can to him and asking for his help. If God the Father sent Jesus to earth on a mission of compassion to heal and deliver us from disease and oppression, why aren't we all living our best lives now and, and all the time? There is ample evidence of the power and the compassion of God for us. If it's not a lack of power and it's not a lack of compassion, why don't we live healthy and free in every aspect of our lives right here, right now? This is a super important question. I think if we keep going in this passage, Jesus has something to say that will reveal more about the purpose of his compassionate mission. Verse 35. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. 
I don't know if Jesus was more invigorated or exhausted by the joy of offering a healing touch here and speaking a word of freedom there. I imagine it was an incredible joy to him, probably also exhausting. When he slips away, he doesn't leave to take a nap. He left to pray. Time with the Father was more essential to his life and well-being and the lives and well-being of the people around him than food or water or rest. Father and Son are united in all they do, and their union fuels the compassion of their shared mission. So Jesus quietly exits, and Simon Peter leads the pack to hunt Jesus down. The newly recruited disciples had just left everything to throw in their lot with this relatively unknown guy. Who can blame them if they were excited by this sudden and overwhelming popularity? The events of the night were validating their life choices. They had a lot at stake, and surely the smart thing for Jesus to do was to keep riding this wave of public approval, build some momentum. And the people of Capernaum, they wanted healing. They wanted deliverance from demonic oppression. And who can blame them? Probably some of the people were there out of sheer curiosity, but for those whose lives were blighted with suffering, I imagine their interest had little to do with thrill-seeking and curiosity and everything to do with genuine aching need and hope. As usual, everyone had an agenda for Jesus. In this case, the unanimous vote from the disciples and from the crowd is for him to stay and just completely cleanse and rid this town of suffering and oppression. And as usual, Jesus insists on a laser-sharp pursuit of the compassionate mission the Father sent him to do. Once again, Jesus fails to meet expectations. For me, this is simultaneously one of the most unsettling and the most comforting aspects of Jesus' character. He does have one eye steadily and tenderly focused on me in my current state. Nothing distracts him from his compassionate attentiveness to me and my needs, and nothing is more valuable to him than my well-being. He has literally given his life to serve me. That's not just true for me. That is true for you also. And there is so much comfort there. But Jesus will never confuse my agenda for the here and now with his agenda for my ultimate well-being in the now and forever. That is so unsettling because I will never really be able to understand or predict what that means for my life. All of my life experience is rooted in the here and now. All your experience is in the here and now. We live in time and space, and our concerns are rooted, naturally enough, in our temporal and bodily existence. Our concerns for the life will lead in the hereafter, which we've not seen, which we don't know much about, are necessarily hazy and intangible. God alone can comprehend the depth and the scope of our deepest needs. And God alone can comprehend the future that he desires for us. Jesus came to earth not just to improve our quality of life here, 
but to announce and usher in the coming reality of the eternal kingdom, where healing is permanent and joy goes on building and building forever. Don't take my word for it. How does Jesus reply to Simon Peter's rebuke? Everyone is looking for you. Jesus says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus chooses to wrap up the healing and deliverance portion of his compassionate mission for now. And he's going to resume the preaching and teaching portion of his compassionate mission. Now, we tend to associate the alleviation of pain and suffering with compassion, and we associate teaching and preaching with, well, teaching and preaching. This is not the case with Jesus. His entire earthly mission is a mission of compassion. Healing is one expression of his compassion, but now he will return to a priority expression of his compassion. And oddly enough, that's preaching. Let us go out to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. He's not leaving the sick and suffering of Capernaum because he's got somewhere more important to be. In fact, he just as he left the larger, more impressive capital of Jerusalem to go to the mid-sized fishing village of Capernaum and serve people and preach there, he now leaves Capernaum to go to even smaller and more backwoodsy little towns to preach. But he is leaving sick and suffering people behind because he has a different and more permanent work to do work that is more fundamentally restorative than the work of physical healing. He's got to preach the good news because that is why he came out. The phrase is a little awkward in this translation, that is why I came out, but this is the sort of language that Jesus uses when he speaks directly about the focus of his compassionate mission. In Mark 1, he said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In Mark 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to save and to save to the uttermost. Jesus puts a temporary halt for now to attending to the immediate needs of the people suffering around him because he will not neglect their eternal needs. Everyone that Jesus healed or delivered that incredible night died, didn't they? Like the Shunammite woman, they got what they longed for, and yet at some point, they grew sick again, they aged, they died, and were every bit as dead as the people he didn't heal that night. The sober truth is that any physical relief that Jesus brings us in this temporal world is by definition only temporary. Our bodies are precious but they are not permanent. And Jesus is not going to stop with merely healing us in the here and now. This present moment with him is a springboard from now into eternity. His compassion for us begins and is evident for us in the here and now, but he will not stop until he has saved us to the uttermost. And to do that, He needs to lead the way through death and into eternity. Over and over in his teaching, Jesus 
expands our understanding of our needs to include our eternal well-being and the eternal well-being of, of those we love. In fact, he frequently tries to shift our priority away from temporal concerns that preoccupy us and toward eternal concerns. See if these sayings of Jesus sound familiar. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty Again, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Until he went to the cross, Jesus went about teaching and preaching and proclaiming the good news of the gospel because he wants nothing less for us than eternal wholeness lived in union with him forever. This is his compassionate mission. And of course, he healed and delivered people all along the way because that is the overflow of his compassionate ministry. Likewise, it's imperative that we express the compassion of Christ by relieving temporal suffering whenever we, wherever we encounter it. But that's not enough. Compassion must not stop there. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, not merely in the here and now, but in the here and now and forever. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul will later elaborate on this, but how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Jesus has the power to save and heal in the here and now and the now and forever. Nothing will distract him from this mission of compassion. In conclusion, first, go ahead and get as close as you can to Jesus. Seek the healing from him. Remember our sister, the Shunammite woman, when her miracle child grew up and died, and she was filled with grief and longing all over again, she didn't hold herself back from hope a second time. This time, she took the body of her son and laid it in the bed, the man of God, and then she ran to find Elisha. This time, she knew where her help would come from. If you are sick in your body or soul, run to Jesus and get as close as you can in the here and now. And if you are seeking healing, I especially commend to you ways of getting close to Jesus through worship, through confession, and through forgiveness. Our diocese has a 40 or 50 year history of healing ministry that is built on a foundation of worship, confession, and forgiveness because those practices open up doors for healing in our lives. But however you do it, get to Jesus. Tell him your needs and your wants, your temporary ephemeral needs and wants. Tell him all that you want. Be bold, be brazen, be vulnerable. He cares so deeply for you. And second, preach the gospel, fellow Christians. As little Christs on a mission of compassion for our Father, we do exactly what we see our big brother Jesus modeled for us to do. Minister 
the healing and deliverance of Jesus to everyone you encounter as you go about proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. You don't have to know what's in the best long-term interest of anyone. Um, You certainly won't be capable of addressing many of the temporal needs you encounter. But absolutely, you can point them toward the one who can. Jesus alone has the power to save and to heal in the here and now and the now and forever. Nothing will distract him from this mission. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.